This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is Anand Benigala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, news, politics, and potentially all that is under the sun. A guest for today is Peter Chataway. Peter D. Chataway was a regular film critic for BC Christian News from 1992 to 2011. His news and opinion pieces have appeared in such publications as Books and Culture, Christianity Today, Bible Review, and The Vancouver Sun. He has also contributed essays to the books reviewing The Passion, Mel Gibson's film and its critics, Scandalizing Jesus, Kazantzakis' The Last Temptation of Christ 50 Years On, and The Bible in Motion, a handbook of the Bible and its reception in film. I'm grateful to welcome Peter Chataway to the Letter of Liberty. Well, happy to be here. Thank you. So... Would you like to share with our listeners a little bit about your past and what brought you to film criticism? <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, um, I always uh, wanted to see my name in print, so uh, when I got into university, I um, um, started writing for the university papers, student papers, Nice. And uh, which, you know, we used to say it's a great place to make all your mistakes, like I eventually went on to become an, an editor at the paper, and we used to tell uh, prospective writers that the paper was a great place to get started because you could make all your mistakes there, and nobody would ever see it. And of course, we had no idea—we <laughs> had no idea that the internet was going to come because this, this is back in the early '90s. <clears throat> we had no idea that the, the internet was going to come, and uh, the university library would uh, create an, an online archive of all the all the back issues of the paper scanned in as searchable PDF files. So now all of our mistakes are there for the whole world to see. But, um, but it was a great environment. Uh, and I did, I, you know, I did some news writing, um, but I also uh, wrote a lot about film. <clears throat> and, um, and I took, I never actually became a film major, but I ended up taking every course because I stayed on after I got my VA. I stayed on for a couple of years uh, taking other studies other other classes, and I ended up taking, I think, just about every class, film class, that a non-major could take, and and I remember the year I became editor was also the year that I was taking a class in film history, and the combination of diving into film history on the one hand, and also suddenly getting access to all these um, press screenings, you know, these uh, critics get invited to see movies before they open, and you get to see them for free. And so suddenly I was seeing a lot of current films at the same time as I was doing some research into older films, and um, something about that combination really grabbed me, and so I that's kind of what I stuck with. Nice. When you mentioned that you worked for your student newspaper, it almost parallels my experience, because I'm not exactly in film criticism, but I have been writing for my student newspaper as well. It's called The Pioneer. And I'm okay. now going. Now I'm an assistant features editor, and next semester I'll be the main features editor along with the, my friend Jillian Petrovsky. It's a fascinating cool. experience to work for your newspaper and look at what issues are interesting and troubling students and faculty. Yeah. So what yeah, attracted the, you? Oh, sorry. Well, what's your question? I, so what attracted you to Bible movies in particular? I mean, biblical movies are stuff that deals yeah. with biblical subject matter. <clears throat> Well, this, that, that actually, what I, that, was, that was what I was going to talk about before you asked the question. Because <laughs> it was uh, um, one of the essays that I wrote for my uh, film history class was an essay specifically on Jesus movies. <clears throat> and because, you know, you have to pick a topic and, you know, you want to pick a topic that maybe not every student has done so that your, your, your teacher or professor will um, maybe they're their ears will perk up a bit if they if it's something they've never really heard before. So the <clears throat> the particular subject that I that I proposed was doing Jesus films, and part of the reason for that was because around the same time I got into journalism, I was also beginning to do a lot of research into historical Jesus studies, and I came from a very conservative evangelical background, and a lot of this stuff was new to me, and I was doing a lot of research and trying to process how, how I felt about it and what I thought about it. 
And along the way, um, since I was also, you know, doing film studies at the time, I decided to take a look at how the story of Jesus had been told in film across the, the decades. And, and, uh, so I did a paper on that, and that paper, um, actually, uh, in just, a, in just, in the space of just a couple of years, it kind of evolved into one of my first magazine articles. Um, uh, I did an article on Jesus movies for Bible Review magazine. And that, uh, and then a year later, a year after that, The Prince of Egypt came out in theaters. That's 20 years ago now. This year is the 20th anniversary of The Prince of Egypt. And so because I had already done this Jesus movie article for Bible Review, I asked them if they would want another article, this time looking at Moses movies, uh, time to coincide with The Prince of Egypt. And they said, sure. And so, um, so a year later, uh, the February 1999 issue of Bible Review, I had an article on Moses movies. And, uh, and I was really fortunate because usually where I live in the Vancouver area, critics get to see movies maybe a couple weeks before they open at, at most. But for some reason, The Prince of Egypt was shown, was shown to the media at least a month before it opened. And so I actually had time to, to see it and include it in the article that I was writing for Bible Review, um, which, which appeared only a month or so after the movie came out. So, so Jesus and Moses, you know, those are sort of the two big ones. One, uh, one New Testament genre and one Old Testament genre. And, um, and then, um, and I was still interested in the genre, um, but, uh, you know, I was working as a journalist after that for BC Christian News. I was writing about film, but I was also a news journalist and so forth. And then things really kicked up to another level when The Passion of the Christ came out in 2004, which was only about, I guess, five and a half years after, less than that, actually, five and a half years after uh, Prince of Egypt came out. And, um, and The Passion of the Christ, of course, attracted lots of attention, lots of commentary. I was in the middle of writing um, an essay on The Lost Temptation and the first per- the per- for a book, for a collection of essays. And the person in charge of that book let me know that a friend of his had been commissioned to put together a book about the Passion, so I pitched an essay to them. And um, so, yeah, so I ended up contributing to that book as well. And, and as time has gone on, of course, after the Passion, because it was such a huge, huge, huge hit, everybody has wanted to copy its success somehow. So there's really... Um, there hasn't been a shortage of stuff to write about since then in that vein. You know, the Nativity story came out only two years later, in 2006. And, uh, and uh, other things have come along since then, and it's, it's kept me busy. Nice. What do you think the strengths of the biblical epic as a genre are? I mean, I think it allows movies to be grand and movies to deal with serious issues and epic stories, and especially with the story of Moses to deal with stories about liberation and about Jesus to deal with stories of salvation. What do you think? Uh, well, part of the... One of the reasons people keep turning to the Bible is because it is one of the foundational texts of our culture. Um, it is... Uh, it's hard to understand anything else if you don't have some knowledge of the Bible, You'll find references to the Bible in Shakespeare or the novels of Thomas Hardy or whatever. And um, and also, of course, the Bible is public domain, so you don't have to get the rights. Um, so it, it's there's a certain built-in audience awareness that helps. Um, and especially if you're doing the Old Testament, I mean, there, there's a pro and a con here. The Old Testament, of course, is part of the Jewish scriptures or the Jewish canon, as well as the Christian canon. And so you can tell a story that appeals to more than just one religion, but at the same time, you may have to be careful how you tell that story because different religious traditions have different ways of interpreting the scriptures. And we saw that big time, if I can get a bit ahead of myself here, we saw that big time when Noah came out four years ago. Noah was written and directed by a couple of Jewish filmmakers, and it is heavily steeped in a Jewish way of looking at the Noah story, 
uh, in terms of rabbinical commentary or the kinds of Jewish legends that have grown up around the Garden of Eden and the Flood and so forth. And a lot of Christians, including myself, weren't really aware of that stuff before the movie came out. And, and so a lot of Christians just dismissed the movie out of hand for being inaccurate, biblically inaccurate, without realizing that a lot of the assumptions they brought to the movie were assumptions that came out of growing up with the story in the Christian tradition. Um, but of course, even within Christianity, you have different traditions, Protestantism, Catholicism, and so forth. And The Passion of the Christ was able, you know, that was a film that was deeply, deeply Catholic, but it was able to attract a lot of Protestant viewers, many of whom didn't even notice how Catholic the movie was. Um, People keep forgetting that there are some really odd bits in The Passion, like, for example, the levitating cross. There's a scene where the Romans, as they're nailing Jesus to the cross, they flip it upside down so that... Jesus is facing face down towards the ground, and ordinarily, you know, his face should be in the dirt. You know, you flip it upside down, you'd be lying in the dirt, and the cross would be on his back. But instead, he's kind of levitating above the ground, and the only person who notices in the film is Mary Magdalene, and you see her look up, and she looks around to see if anybody else has noticed this, but they haven't. You know, the Romans are looking somewhere else. And a lot of Protestant viewers... um, didn't notice that scene and have simply forgotten about it. But that I believe that comes out of some, you know, Catholic visionaries' um, writings from a few hundred years ago. And so when you're telling a story that, that, that appeals to a very broad audience, um, there, you might be able to get things in there from one tradition if the people from the other tradition don't notice it. But if it's very obviously from a different tradition, as was the case with Noah, then you could end up having a very divided audience. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so you asked about strengths, and I guess I sort of segued into some potential weaknesses there. But um, basically, Bible movies do have a very a wide appeal. They're very they're based on stories that are very well known, um, and so that's appealing for the filmmakers. It makes it a very easy thing to sell in some cases, and. The stories uh, can be retold in ways that address different issues as they come up. And the most obvious example of this is the two versions of the Ten Commandments that Cecil B. DeMille made. Um, He actually made two films called the Ten Commandments. One of them was in the 1920s, a silent film. And that film is addressing the the so-called modern era. It's addressing the fact that in the 1920s, um, post-World War I, People were living increasingly immoral lives, as Cecil B. DeMille saw it. They were rejecting God's commandments. They were living lives that were very destructive. And, and Cecil B. DeMille's argument in that film is that if you, if you disobey these laws, these aren't just laws. These are, this is, these are guidelines for how the world works, basically, sort of the way he would see it. And that if you, if you flout these laws, you do so to your own destruction. And so in that film, there's a character who says he's going to break all the Ten Commandments, and by the end of the film, um, his life is absolutely ruined. And he's got a brother who's been following the commandments, and that brother is sort of the noble, upright character. So that's the sort of issue. But but at the same time, the, the 1920s version of the Ten Commandments also expresses concern that the religious fundamentalists of the 1920s were too legalistic, because these two brothers have a mother who is very legalistic, and that's partly why one of her sons is rebelling. So the 1920s version of the Ten Commandments is is dealing with those issues that were very pressing in the 1920s. In the 1950s, when Cecil B. DeMille made the famous Charlton Heston version of the Ten Commandments, now his big concern is the Cold War. And he makes it very clear. And uh, there's an intro to the film uh, where Cecil B. DeMille comes out from behind a curtain and addresses the theater, or nowadays I guess he addresses the living room, and he 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 actually tells you what the theme of the movie is. And he says, you know, are are men going to be guided by God's laws, or are they going to be guided by the whims of a dictator like the Pharaoh? And and then he, and he says this same battle continues throughout the world today. So the film is very clearly dealing with questions of totalitarianism 
and liberty um, as as it was perceived during the the 1950s, the Cold War, you know, America versus Russia, and all that. So you can you can tell these stories in different contexts and um, bring out different themes. And you and frankly, you see this happening within the Bible itself. You know. We have four Gospels, each of which takes a very different angle on the life of Jesus. Yeah, um, they're all complementary angles, but um, but they emphasize different things. And in the Old Testament, you have the Book of Kings, but you also have the Book of Chronicles, which emphasize different things. The Chron- Book of Chronicles was written at a time when the Jerusalem Temple was being rebuilt, and so the Book of Chronicles really emphasizes the role of the Temple in the Judean Kingdom, which wasn't that central a concern in the Book of Kings. So, um, within the Bible, you see stories told and retold to address different historical situations, and that's the same thing that you can you can see in the Bible movie genre. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I also want to bring up the question of the movie Noah, which I personally mm-hmm. admired, even though I'm evangelical. I mean, a lot of my family did not like it, and they thought it was crazy. And I thought it was a fascinating <laughs> well, it is, film, it is even crazy. though... <laughs> it it is crazy, but some of us some of us like crazy, and some of us don't like that kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I say crazy in, in an affectionate way because the the director of that film, Darren Aronofsky, has made films that very often go in a crazy direction. If, if you've seen Black Swan or uh, Requiem for a Dream or his newest film, Mother. I mean, he, he has a tendency to go to extremes. He has an idea, and he follows that idea to its extreme sometimes. And, um, and that's just the way he works. And if you, if you, if you, this is part of the, part of the thing you have to deal with with Bible films is that, um, these films are made by artists who have their own artistic perspective and their own style, their own artistic style. And, you know, when, when when The Passion came out, I remember, uh, again, the, the thing that Christians often talk about when they look at Bible movies is, is this movie accurate? And The Passion of the Christ was called accurate, even though in some ways it's actually not. And Noah was called inaccurate, even though some of the supposed inaccuracies actually weren't as inaccurate as people thought they were. Um, and accuracy, inaccuracy... Um, I think that has to be understood within the context of how different artists mold the material to to reflect whatever sorts of themes they're interested in. You know, Mel Gibson, for example, is very interested in definitions of masculinity, what it means to be a man. Um, I uh, before the Passion came out, I, you know, he he'd only directed two films before that: um, The Man Without a Face and Braveheart. And I, I saw both of those films just before I saw The Passion, and uh, and I joked I joked that um, uh, somebody was going to have a, a damaged eye on one side of their face because that that was the case in his other two films. And sure enough, the Romans beat up Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he spends the, the entire rest of the movie with a swollen eye on that side. Um, and and for Gibson, being a being a man often means being able to take the pain, and so the Jesus in his film isn't just flogged; he stands up halfway through the flogging, almost, and it's almost like he's inviting a second round of flogging, like he's almost showing off the fact that he can take it. Um, and uh, but Gibson is also Mel Gibson also has some serious uh, daddy issues. If you watch Man Without a Face or you watch Braveheart, there are characters in there who are um, who have very complicated relationships with their fathers. And when I saw The Passion, I was struck by the fact that one of the very, very first lines of dialogue in that film, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, Satan appears to him, which is not in the scripture, but it's he, but you know, Satan appears to him in in, in the garden in the movie. And one of the first things Satan says to him is, who is your father? Who are you? And I thought, whoa, like, Mel Gibson got that thing of his into this movie, too. Um, so Mel Gibson has his, um, you know, in, in film studies, this is called uh, uh, auteur theory, the, you know, the idea that a director puts his personal stamp, even if a director is working within the Hollywood factory, 
you know, the Hollywood studios crank out movies all the time. And uh, But even if you're working in the Hollywood factory, the auteur still <laughs> puts personal touches on everything he directs. And Mel Gibson certainly did that with The Passion. And, of course, Darren Aronofsky did that with Noah. Darren Aronofsky, you know, at my blog, I have a post where I look at, I think it's like two dozen different things <clears throat> that Noah has in common with other Darren Aronofsky films. There are just certain visual images and certain themes that constantly come up in his films. Um, Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan both have scenes <coughs> in which the main characters, or one of the main characters, is taunted by sort of a darker version of themselves. Um, and in Noah, Noah is freaked out when he sees, uh, he, he goes down to the camp where all the Tubal Cain and all his characters are, are uh, you know, rounding up their slaves and feasting on living animals and all that stuff. And, and Noah is, is spooked when he sees himself um, a, a darker, more evil-looking version of himself looking back at him. And that's, that's a visual motif that happens in a lot of Aronofsky films. And so that, that's something to keep in mind when you're watching these films. It's not just... It's, it, none of these films are ever just the Bible. It's always the Bible as filtered through an artistic sensibility. And especially if you have a director like Gibson or Aronofsky who has a very strong personal style you know, the story is going to be filtered through that in some way. And I think that has to be... It's like, it's like the filmmaker is in dialogue with the Bible, and I think we have to be in dialogue with both of them as we respond to the film. Yeah, and one of, yeah. Yeah, and one of the things I've noticed about The Passion of, Christ, Passion of the Christ is that it's received a lot of backlash as of recent, partly because it's still perceived as anti-Semitic, and it's right. still partly perceived as over-violent in a way that something like The Last Temptation of Christ isn't, and I want to discuss a little bit about The Passion before we get to The Last Temptation, which I haven't okay. seen yet, but what do you think of The Passion in retrospect? I think it's a kind of flawed masterpiece. I think it does border on the extreme in retrospect, but I think it's generally a well-made movie. Well, um, it certainly is somewhat extreme. I mean, you know, one of Gibson's other, one of Mel Gibson's other personal touches is the fact that it is so violent. Um, Gibson, Gibson. If you listen to the director's commentary on the Braveheart DVD, the scene where the scene where William Wallace is tortured to death at the end, Mel Gibson says he wanted it to be gorier, but the studio stopped him because they said that people would be fleeing the theater in terror just if it got if it went too far. Um, he, he, like, I think he wanted to show William Wallace being disemboweled, and he didn't go quite that far, but. Um, but of course, the passion he made it with his own money. There was no studio involved, so he so there were no limits on him. He could do whatever he wanted, and that kind of extreme violence is very much a Mel Gibson thing. Um, I think I haven't I haven't seen the passion in the last few years, but my memory of it is that I liked it more. I saw it three or four times the first you know within the first year after it came out. And my memory of it is that I liked it more on reviewing than I did the first time around, partly because I really came to appreciate one particular aspect of the film. Um, one, one issue that a lot of Jesus films have had to deal with is the question of, um, like, for example, if you make a biography, like a biopic, or biopic as some people pronounce it, if, if you make a biopic about an historical figure, usually that figure gets to be the central character in their own movie. So you watch Lawrence of Arabia, and you're dealing with all the insecurities that Lawrence himself presumably had, at least the way that those filmmakers see it. Jesus movies have been very reluctant to make Jesus the central character in his own movie, because if you make him a character, you have to treat him like a person, and I think a lot of people are more comfortable treating Jesus as an icon, treat, you know, treating him as somebody that we look at, but not as somebody that we identify with. And so, you know, the first Hollywood movie about Jesus after the silent era was a movie called King of Kings in 1961, and I, I once actually timed every scene in that film and added up the numbers, and I think 
Jesus is actually in less than half of the movie. <laughs> it's like at least half of the movie deals with Romans mm-hmm. and disciples talking among themselves and zealots attacking the Romans and other stuff. Um, but that movie is really reluctant to make, to make Jesus the central character in his own movie because it's reluctant to make him a character, period. It's kind of like he, Jesus is the person who stands there and talks, and we look at him and we listen to him, but we're, you know, how do you identify with Jesus? How do you, uh, how do you identify with the Son of God? How do you treat him like another person? And a lot of films have had trouble with that. Um, the Last Temptation of Christ, you know, went very strongly in the direction of treating Jesus as another person and got into a lot of trouble for it. And I guess we can talk about that in a few minutes. But The Passion of the Christ, I think, strikes a really interesting balancing act between looking at Jesus and looking with Jesus. Um, the way Mel Gibson filmed it, it, he uses a lot of point-of-view shots to give us the impression that we are seeing what Jesus is seeing. And he also uses a lot of flashbacks. And the flashbacks aren't, they're not just there to fill in the backstory. They're not just there to, you know, sort of tell us what happened. The flashbacks are all, all of them are presented as memories. Jesus sees something and it triggers a memory for him. And he's remembering things from his past. He remembers so when when um, when he when he sees somebody beginning to make the cross for him in the Jerusalem temple courtyard, um, he has a flashback to his own days as a carpenter, to when things were happier between himself and his mother. They could they could talk happily, and you know he was just a carpenter. And later on in the film, you know he's, he's, as he's stumbling through the uh, the streets of Jerusalem, he sees these people condemning him. And he has a flashback to when he was riding the donkeys through the streets and the people were praising him. Possibly different people, but still, you know, crowds in the streets. And um, every the result of this is that every Jesus is looking at things, and the things he looks at, we see, we look at these things with him, and these things trigger memories. And for the audience, it's kind of like being drawn into the flow of Jesus' own thought. And the fact that we are drawn into the flow of his own thoughts allows us to identify with him on, on, that, on that level, even as the movie still maintains a certain respectful distance in other ways. And you have scenes, you have scenes in The Passion where characters like Herod don't like it when Jesus looks at them. Um, the presence of Jesus still strikes a certain kind of fear in them. And so Jesus is still kind of imposing and mystical in a way, and yet the way, the way he sees things and the way he remembers things is presented in a way that we as an audience can identify with. So it's a very, it's a very interesting balancing act between the, what you might call the subjective and objective depictions of Jesus. And I can't, the only other film I can think of that has um, come even close to that sort of balancing act is an animated film, called uh, The Miracle Maker. The Miracle Maker is really good, and it's a British-Russian co-production um, that also makes uh, very interesting... It's animated. It uses stop-motion puppets for the so-called real world, um, for, the, for the stuff that you might film if you had a camera. Um, but it uses hand-drawn animation for memories and for um, demonic experiences, like when Mary Magdalene is possessed by demons, um, and uh, things like that. And so the Miracle Maker also has this interesting balancing act of this is happening in front of you, and here's what the characters are thinking about it, if I can put it that way. Nice. And I want to go to Last Temptation of Christ now, which is a film directed by Martin Scorsese and stars William Dafoe as Jesus Christ. It centers around the last temptation Jesus faced when he was about to die on the cross, the last temptation being that he could enter into a sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene and have a marriage and have children, and he can do this instead of having to be the Savior who will die for our sins. And what do you think of that in retrospect? I know a lot of evangelicals did not like the idea about that and didn't like the movie and Stephen D. Graydonas, a Catholic film critic, calls it blasphemous. Roger Ebert, who was raised Catholic but who wasn't a religious one, 
he liked the film. Yeah, I think Ebert actually credits uh, Steve Gardanis with uh, convincing him that the movie was blasphemous. Uh, but Ebert, not being religious at that point in his life, uh, was okay with that. Um, yeah, and that movie actually also has an anniversary this year. This is the 30th anniversary of The Last Temptation this year. Um, where to begin with this one? Um I think for me, like I, well, I actually saw the film uh, 30 years ago when it first came out, and my immediate reaction at the time was that I didn't, I didn't buy that character, the, the character that Willem Dafoe plays. I didn't, I didn't buy that character as Jesus. I, I had a hard time being offended or, or, or you know responding to it as though it were blasphemy, because I had a hard time believing that Defoe was actually playing Jesus. And what I mean by that is, um, I basically couldn't imagine the character he played attracting a following the way that Jesus did. I, I you know, um, I think it was Marcus Borg who said that, uh, who was sort of a liberal, uh, who, who was sort of a liberal historian, but uh, Marcus Borg, uh, I think, I think even he commented that there's a scene in the film where Jesus sort of apologizes when he's about to tell one of his parables. He sort of apologizes for not being able, for not having a lot of experience telling stories. And Marcus Borg said, "Well, come on, if he if he doesn't think he's a good storyteller, why would anybody else think he is?" And um, I think my favorite comment on the Last Temptation of Christ is. Uh, from a Catholic scholar named, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name, I've only seen it in print. His first name is Lloyd, and his last name is spelled B-A-U-G-H. Lloyd Baugh, or Baugh, or I'm not, I'm not sure exactly, but um, he has a book called uh, Imaging the Divine, where he talks about Jesus films, and then he talks about Christ figure films. And he makes the point that the problem with the last temptation of Christ is not the low Christology, uh, which is to say it's, it's very low view of what it means to be the Messiah, for Jesus to be Son of God or whatever. The problem with last temptation of Christ is its low anthropology, which is to say it's low view of what it means just to be human. And a lot of people defended last temptation of Christ back in the day by saying, oh, finally, a Jesus who is human like me. And I think that's, um, I think that's actually the wrong way to make a Jesus movie. The whole point of Jesus is that he is human, fully human, in a way that the rest of us are not. You know? The rest of us are fallen and sinful within Christian understanding, and we are not fully human. You often hear people say things like, Jesus was fully human, but without sin. Well, that's actually the wrong way to think of it. Jesus is fully human, and therefore he did not sin. It's the rest of us who are not fully human, and that's why we sin. And, and uh, you know, m- many ancient church, church fathers have said things like, um, God became human so that man could be divinized, so that man could become, God became like us so that we could become like him. <clears throat> Jesus, um, <clears throat> excuse me, or as I think C.S. Lewis put it, um, um, God became Christ in order to make the rest of us little Christ, you know? Like, we are all to follow his example and to uh, try to become holier, you know? This is, this, is, uh, um, this is what Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, be perfect even as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And... So the, one, of the, one of the big problems with The Last Temptation of Christ, I think, is that it was approached by the filmmakers as an attempt to make Jesus relatable, as they say nowadays. Um, it was an attempt to make Jesus human like us. And in the, case of, in the case of that particular film, Jesus comes across as very neurotic, very insecure, um, very unsure as to who or what he should be and what he should do. Uh, he's racked with guilt. Um, for some reason, he sits and stares and watches as Mary Magdalene has sex with a bunch of customers, uh, which doesn't happen in the book version of Last Temptation, by the way. In The Last Temptation, Jesus does go to visit Mary Magdalene, but he sits outside the house, 
and he waits until she's done with all her customers before he speaks to her. In the film, Jesus actually sits in the, in the group with all the other clients waiting their turn and basically watches as she has sex with all the customers before he finally talks to her. And and there, if you listen to the director's commentary on that DVD, Martin Scorsese says that he he filmed it that way because uh, because he said we we are all surrounded by sin, and so if Jesus could deal with it, we can deal with it. Well, maybe, but I don't think Jesus would have dealt with it by just sitting in the crowd and watching. <laughs> you know, so um, I think I think Last Temptation of Christ. Um, I totally believe in making a Jesus movie where Jesus is human, where Jesus has emotions. I don't think I don't think having emotions is a big sign of humanity necessarily because if you read the Bible, certainly the God of the Old Testament seems to have emotions. But I I think um, I think ultimately I think it comes down to what you think being human is. And for me, being human is ultimately about um doing God's will for you, knowing what God wants you to do, and doing it. And and for Jesus, being fully human ultimately had to do with um, being perfectly in sync with God. And we, we ourselves are supposed to try to become more in sync with God than we already are. And and I, I think The Last Temptation kind of misses that by, by making its portrayal of a human Jesus extremely weak and vacillating. And, um, and like I say, I mean, you watch Last Temptation, and you can probably think of, a, you know, a hundred people who were better leaders, more inspiring human beings than the Jesus who is depicted in that film. So that's, that's sort of my main... Uh, problem with the film, I mean, criticism. The blasphemy question is, is kind of further, it's further downstream from that, but that's, that's sort of my, my starting point. Yeah, that's interesting. And one of the Jesus films I liked was The Gospel According to St. Matthew by Pier Paolo Pasolini, which does yeah. depict Jesus in a kind of divine light and in a very radical light. He's not exactly a smiling Jesus, but that doesn't bother me much because I really liked the artistry in that movie. It's a very good film, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That Pasolini's film was really... <laughs> um, um, that film was made in the mid-60s, right around the time King of Kings and The Greatest Story Ever Told. <clears throat> These two big, super expensive Hollywood movies were made. And it, it's the complete opposite of those films stylistically. Um, it's black and white, made for, I assume, a very small budget. And... Um, uh, made in that sort of Italian neorealist style where you've got lots of... Uh, uh, there, there are no professional actors in it, you know. Uh, everything looks kind of rough. Um, it's not glossy. and Like, I, th I think for Greatest Story Ever Told, I think they actually had people going out and painting the flowers in some of the landscape shots um, just to make it look beautiful. <laughs> and um, Pasolini doesn't do that at all. And what's striking is that Pasolini's film was, um, you know, Pasolini was uh, an Italian raised in a Catholic country, um, and he made he made his movie partly to jolt his fellow Italian Catholics um, with the immediacy of Jesus's words in the Gospel, and um, he he noted with some irony afterwards that his film was scandalous in Italy because a lot of Italians had simply never encountered the Jesus of the Scriptures before. They had, they had simply never, they had never heard him speak these words, and they had never thought about what it would actually mean for an itinerant preacher to, to walk around Judea saying these, controversial, these potentially controversial things. Um, but he said that when the film came out in America, the film was embraced by Protestants who did know their Bible, and... Protestants who were tired, tired of the of the uh, glossy Hollywood versions of Jesus' story, and these Protestants welcomed his film as the first accurate movie. So for them, it wasn't it wasn't shocking them at all. <laughs> and uh, he made the film to shock people, and so he was he found it kind of ironic that in America it actually wasn't perceived as shocking. 
Understandable. I think it's a really good movie, and I like the way it portrays a very straightforward portrait of the Gospel of St. Matthew. I'd actually be interested if Pasolini ever did a Gospel according to St. Mark, and it ends around the moment where the women are afraid after the man yeah. that Jesus is risen. What would you think? If Pasolini had done that? If Pasolini ever did that in his life. I don't think he ever made a movie called The Gospel According to St. Mark, but no. he should have. No. Well, <laughs> um, well, you almost... I mean, I mean, Matthew's... In many ways, Matthew's Gospel is kind of a longer version of Mark's Gospel. You know, there isn't, there isn't a lot of information in Mark that doesn't also appear in Matthew and Luke. Uh, Matthew or Luke, and or Luke. And... Um, you could almost make a Mark movie just by taking Pasolini's movie and cutting out the bits that aren't in Mark. Um, however, having said that, it's interesting, you know, it's called The Gospel According to St. Matthew, but there are elements in that film that actually come from other Gospels, too. You know, John's Gospel is the only one that tells us that Mary was at the crucifixion, and that's in Pasolini's film. He has, he has Mary at the crucifixion. So, you know, you can see traces of the other Gospels kind of creeping in there. And Pasolini actually said that John was his favorite gospel, because Pasolini, in addition to being a filmmaker, he was a poet. And he thought that John's gospel was actually the most poetic of them all. But he made Matthew, because he was also very politically um, active. And he thought that Matthew's gospel was the best gospel from a political point of view. So that's why he, that's why he decided to film Matthew. Yeah. I mean, and before I close out this episode, I'd like to ask, what are some of the positive trends you notice in Bible movies today? What are some of the negative trends? And why are Moses and Jesus movies more prominent than, say, movies about people like David or even Samson or Solomon? Um, that's a good question. I think my first instinct would be that Jesus and Moses are both foundational to um, to the faith. I mean, Moses, of course, you know, uh, from a Jewish point of view, Moses is the giver of the law, or he receives the law from God. Um, Moses uh, is, you know, Moses is uh, credited with writing the first five books of the Bible, and he's certainly the main character in four of them. <clears throat> and um, so, you know, Moses is foundational to the whole Judeo-Christian thing. Um, and Jesus, of course, is absolutely central to Christianity. So it makes sense, I think, for for those two to be filmed the most. It's harder to do a Moses movie, I think, because um, to tell the story, you have to have your, you know, your, the proverbial crowd of thousands, you know, the cast of thousands. You have to have, <clears throat> you know, a giant sea of Israelites marching across the desert, or you have to have mighty palaces for Pharaoh, and that's the sort of thing that can um, drive up the movie's budget. Whereas for Jesus, you might need to have a temple, um, but for the most part, Jesus you know, spent his life going around small villages, and um, so it, you know, Jesus movies can be made on smaller budgets. Um, <coughs> So I, think, I think that's why those two are the, the ones that everybody gravitates towards. Um, David, there have been a few attempts to do David. Um, in fact, between the 1960s, which is kind of when the Bible genre died out as far as Hollywood was concerned, between the 1960s and The Prince of Egypt, I think the only major uh, Bible movie uh, that anybody made, uh, aside from Jesus Christ Superstar, which is in a category all its own, um, was uh, the King David movie with Richard Gere in 1985. And that was a flop. It just did not do well. Um, since then, you know, roughly 10 years ago, there was a TV show called Kings, which tried to tell the David story in a modern-day context, with David and Saul and Jonathan, etc. And, and then just uh, a year ago, maybe two years ago, we had... Kings and Prophets, which yeah. also tried to tell the, the Saul and David story, and they canceled it in North America after just two episodes because it just wasn't getting the ratings. And again, you know, um, there, there's that risk when you're telling the story. I mean, yes, on the one hand, the, the David story is very well known, uh, so there's a built-in audience awareness factor. But on the other hand, um, 
how do you tell the story in a way that keeps that audience? Uh, the, the David story is very appealing to, to filmmakers because you, there's a great potential there for sex and violence. You know, David and Bathsheba, battles with the Philistines. There's all sorts of stuff you can do. There's yeah, that's one of the greatest things. ancient stories ever yeah. written about a about a way that, that a person changes through time. So that's interesting, especially if you wanted to pick the portrait of changing in movies. Yeah. But but how you tell the but of course a lot of a lot of people want just the Sunday school version of David, which doesn't get into all the nitty gritty. So what do you do with that? Um, about ten fifteen years ago, there was uh, uh, there's a writer named J Michael Straczynski. Um, he produced a TV series called Babylon Five back in the nineties. Um, ten fifteen years ago, he wrote a script about King David for Universal Studios, I think it was, and uh, and it never got made. It, the film never got made. And I asked him on Twitter once, whatever happened to that? And he said, well, the studio wasn't prepared for some of the stuff he found, or for some of the stuff he put in the script, like the fact that David, um, in order to marry King Saul's daughter, David had to kill a hundred Philistines and cut off their foreskins and give them to King Saul. You know, That's, that is totally in the Bible. It's the book of First Samuel. Yeah. But... But the studio wasn't prepared for that, and apparently his script had some other really grisly stuff, too. And so the studio didn't think this would sell to the faith-based audience, so they just didn't make it. <laughs> so so um, I, think, I think stuff like that. And as for Samson, I mean, Samson, again, you've got lots of potential for sex and violence there, too, but, but people generally want the Sunday school version of Samson. What's, fa- what's fascinating there is, you know, Pure Flick Studios, which is a very sort of conservative evangelical movie studio, they made a Samson movie just two months ago, and they kind of whitewashed Samson. They kind of... Um, he doesn't visit prostitutes like the Samson of the Bible does, not, not, not willingly. Instead, he complains that somebody tricked him by inviting him into a, into a hotel, quote-unquote, which turns out to be a brothel, you know? Um, so... Uh, it's like they, they wanted to tell the Samson story, but they took out some of the really uh, tabloid-esque, scandalous bits of it. Uh, yeah. And they, they sort of neutered Samson, and, and which is fascinating because they were trying to sell this movie to the same crowd that normally insists on movies being biblically accurate. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, think sto- I think stories like Samson and David scare people because... Um, the, if you're going to tell them the way the Bible tells them, you have to include a lot of stuff that the Bible... You're, you're going to have to tell them in a way that includes a lot of stuff that regular readers of the Bible don't want to see in their movies. Yeah. And so what are some of the positive trends and negative trends you see in the way Bible, the Bible is being depicted in media right now? Do you see any hope for a thoughtful media? Um, possibly. I... The major studios don't seem to be doing much with the Bible right now. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, we had Noah and Exodus. I liked Noah for what it was, um, but a lot of people didn't. Um, and then that was followed by Exodus, which um, I thought Exodus was just a... I thought there were things about Exodus that I kind of liked because it showed the filmmakers had done their homework. I just didn't think they put it together very well. Um Ridley Scott is a very hit-and-miss director for me, so that was definitely a miss for me. Um, and since then, the studios, the only really big-budget, big-screen movie that they've made is Ben-Hur, which came out two years ago. And the Ben-Hur, <clears throat> the Ben-Hur remake was just awful, um, I thought, on a number of levels. And um, so as far as the big studios are concerned, I'm not sure I trust them to really do it and get it right at this point. Uh, we do see a number of smaller budget movies that are being made, some of which have some interesting things going on. Um, Risen came out a couple years ago, and I thought the first half of Risen in particular was really interesting, the way it approached the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection as a sort of a, sort of almost as a whodunit, you know? The body has gone missing from the tomb, and so now the Romans are trying to figure out who took it. And I, I thought I thought there were some very interesting things going on in that film. Um, and um, this year we had Paul Apostle of Christ, of Christ, which I thought was a um, 
very well done for what it was. It's not, it's not the life of Paul. It doesn't tell his whole story because for that you really would need a big budget. But it's, it's set in sort of the last days of Paul and he's in prison waiting to be martyred and he tells his life story to Luke. And, and I thought that film did some interesting things in its portrayal of the early Christians in, in Rome. Um, and I really appreciated that film's portrayal of the marriage between Aquila and Priscilla because you don't see a lot of marriages in New Testament movies. You know, most, most New Testament movies, you get uh, either the main character is single, like Paul, or, 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 or the main character has a wife in the Bible, but we never see the wife on, in the movie, like Peter. You know, the Bible, the Bible talks about Peter's life in a couple places. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, he says Peter takes his wife with him on his travels, but you, you never see Peter's wife in a movie. So um, the fact that the fact that the Paul Apostle of Christ focuses the way it does on Aquila and Priscilla, a married couple who are helping to lead the church, I thought that was really well done. Nice. Yeah. So you wanted to say anything else, sir? Uh, no, no one thing comes to mind. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I could keep going on this topic for a long time, but I think we've uh, run out your clock, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a good time to close, and I want to thank you so much for appearing on this show. Your comments mean a lot to me, and I trust they'll mean a lot to my listeners. So, yeah, until next time... Okay, thank you. Until next time, this has been the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit wcwp.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.